Let me pray. I'm going to read from um, uh, Isaiah 66. The Lord says, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Lord, as we, as we get to grips with James chapter 3 this morning, we pray that we might be humble and contrite before you, that we might tremble at your word. We pray that you would be at work within us and among us. And we pray these things for your glory. Amen. Um, we're just going to be in 1 to 12, actually. I'm going to not do 13 to 18. I think there was enough in 1 to 12 to keep us busy. Um, so we're focusing there. But they say that the pen is mightier than the sword. That is, rather than fighting with weapons against flesh and blood and bodies, um, changing minds and hearts with words can bring a longer-lasting effect, a longer benefit. Rather than chucking um, physical grenades... Well, so verbal grenades can be a much better option. Why? Because we live in a world where words have power. And that's the way it was meant to be. And that is how God made it. We have a speaking God. And he speaks and worlds come into being. And new life is given. And, and lives are totally transformed and turned upside down. And, and you see, if his words are powerful then we need to take great care with how we use our own words because we are made in his image. And so in some sense, then our words, our words will be powerful. Not the same kind of power as our God, of course. But it means that our words are never just words, are they? It means if we're not careful, they can cause great damage. We can cause great damage to people. And yet we live in a world of words. I'm told that we speak on average between 20,000 and 30,000 words per day. Some of us more, <laughs> some of us less. But that means there's up to nearly 11 million words per year. 11 million opportunities for carelessness and damage. And add to that the funny times in which we live, because in some senses, we live in a moment where we are encouraged to say exactly what we feel. Where getting things off your chest and dropping truth bombs and, and you do you, it's applauded, where people are, are passionate with their words, but passion can simply really mean anger at times, but people are not careful with their words. That is the, those are the times in which we live. And you will know that from having received them. And you will know that from having given them. It can be so easy to seek to get our way, to seek to control people and coerce people, to, to make them do what we want, perhaps maybe through sheer force of will or through the soft power of manipulation and knowing just the right buttons to press so we get just the right thing that we wanted. And in a world full of words... A world full of people who speak words and who can control and coerce and manipulate. Isn't the Lord Jesus so brilliant? Think of his words. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in his presence? If you could be in the right place at the right time, at the right moment, to hear how he spoke to different people as we, as we read him in the Gospels. 
Whether it's the life-giving, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Or it's the, well, neither do I condemn you. Go away and sin no more. Or it's the, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or it's, do not worry. He never uses his words carelessly. He never seeks to control or coerce or manipulate. He's the one who brings life and he brings freedom through his words. He never retaliated, volleying back insults back and forth. He he never sought revenge where he felt he was stuck in a corner and had had to lash out at someone. He always had control of his words. It seems to me he was always careful. Wouldn't you love to be in a church like that? People increasingly growing in the likeness of the Lord Jesus, always taking care with their words, increasingly speaking like him, speaking in a way that builds up, increasingly aware of the power of our words, and so increasingly keen to steward them and to use them carefully and to use them well. We live in a world of words, and so let's get into James chapter 3. Um, Do you remember the story so far in James? The big idea is we are not to be double-minded. And by double-minded, he's talking about the kind of Christian that's sitting on the fence or that's riding two bikes, that's, that's kind of keen for Jesus some of the time, but then feels the allure of the world sucking them in, pulling them in so often. And they're not quite sure what they want. Can I trust him? Do I jump 100% in with him? And on Sunday, you come to church and look the part, and it's great, but then the rest of the week, we just find ourselves blending in, looking like everyone else. And our section for today, 3, 1 to 12, it seems to me it's the kind of culmination and climax for a number of threads that he's already started us with. He's, he's given them in previous weeks. We've chewed them a bit, but then he kind of hits home here. So he's already told us, do you remember first, he's already told us that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak, One nineteen. So he's already said that. He's already said as well that the stuff that comes out of us in our squabbles, well, it comes out of us not because of the squabbles, not because of the situation, but because the stuff was already there in the first place. It wouldn't come out of us if it was already there, if it wasn't already there, sorry. What we do and what we say and how we respond reflects something of what's going on inside and how our hearts are. And then last week with um, Phil, as Tony was reminding us, It's not just enough to believe stuff about God. That isn't enough. But that belief is to be active. It's to affect how we live. The belief goes to behave. It's treatment of the poor. Or this week, it's how we use our words. Faith is active. It bears fruit. It's daily. And so come with me to verse 1 and 2. And let me read them again. And you'll see as I read them, perhaps, why I find these verses difficult. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. If you are somebody in or considering ministry, any kind of teaching ministry in the church, verse 1 ought to cause you to press pause for a moment. And feel the weight of that. Why judge more strictly, verse 1? 
I think the word there in verse 2, the perfect word, helps us, actually. It's a word we've seen a few times already in James. If you go back to 1 verse 4, it's particularly helpful. I'm going to read it from 1 verse 2 to verse 4, and hopefully you'll see where I'm going. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, because whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And you say, ha, where does it say perfect? And the mature word there in verse 4 is the perfect word. In fact, if you've got different translations, your translation might show that. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Christian maturity is not caught up in the kinds of things that we so often think it is. It's not in amazing Bible knowledge. It's not in your extraordinary wisdom. It's not in your competence or your excellence or your ability to kind of float through life untroubled, it seems. But maturity is seen in our words. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is mature. Three verse twos. It's challenging, isn't it? It's the person who never needs to have regrets over what they've said. It's the person who never wishes they could just press the rewind button and suck those words back in because they weren't meant to come out. Did I say those out loud? I'm really sorry. That's maturity. And the danger is we can overlook maturity if they're good at stuff. There have been some famous examples of that recently in the wider Christian world that we've referred to in previous sermons. Leaders, perhaps, who have got a short fuse And they end up hurting people. But those things were overlooked because they had amazing Bible knowledge and they seemed to be really wise and competent and they could certainly gather a crowd, it seems. Or maybe it's why Paul lists the qualifications for church leadership in Titus and Timothy or or Peter in 1 Peter 5. And there's lots and lots and lots of stuff on character, not competence. And how do you judge someone's character? Well, in part, it'll be through their 11 million words per year. The kind of things they say. So maturity is not about being impressive. James tells us, in part at least, it's about how we are able to take care with our words. And we say, well, why does that matter so much? Why do words matter so much? We've already said, in one sense, they are powerful. They are never merely words. And so two points from the rest of the section. The first one is, our words have a day-to-day power. And the second, our words have a diagnostic power. Firstly, then, a day-to-day power. Thank you. Verse 3 to 5. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Do you know, your tongue is pretty small. I'm told on average it's about, about 65 grams, which is... I think about a thousandth of our overall body weight for the average global human. Pretty small. But what power through what we say? And power for good, says James, and power for bad. 
And the positive power there, do you see, the examples he uses, they're like a small bridle as it steers a horse, maybe away from danger, in the right direction. The way it's meant to go, or a tiny rudder on a huge boat, away from the rocks, towards safety. And the tongue, it's tiny, but it can bring great good. Little words, that throwaway comment, but such a huge impact it can have. You know the encouraging conversation that made all the difference. Maybe words that stick with you for decades. Maybe something your teacher said at school even. And it impacts you for the rest of your life. No pressure, teachers in here. But maybe the conversation with a friend at church and they know just how to, to help you when you're struggling at the end of a difficult day. And they, they're able to kind of speak the gospel afresh and it doesn't feel kind of awkward and clunky gear change, but they're just able to challenge you and help you and encourage you. Maybe you've got this rumination going round and round and round in your head and you're stuck there. And they can just speak into it and bring light. Maybe it's the, um, that conversation that changes your life forever. Maybe it's the friend who first spoke to you of Jesus and they stuck their necks out and they, they loved you enough to explain to you why he is such good news and it was just five minutes. But everything changed. That five minutes had eternal value. And you can look back at that moment and you can see what they said in that moment impacted your life forever. And everything was different. Tiny words. Huge potential. Positive power. I say scan through your calendar for this coming week and think... Who am I seeing? What have I got going on? Who am I going to spend time with? Where are my opportunities for speaking good into the lives of people? The positive power of the tongue. 65 grams, but such extraordinary power. And maybe pray that the Lord might give you the right words at the right time for the right people. It might just be five minutes. It might just be one minute. It may just be a sentence. And it sticks with them forever. The positive power of the tongue of our words. And yet, James is not unaware of the negative power either. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of, of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It's the 10 o'clock news and you're watching the pain and the devastation of forest fires in Australia or California or, or wherever it is. A single spark, tiny spark. Not really noticeable. Maybe someone didn't put out the barbecue properly. Maybe someone left a glass bottle and the, the sunshine focuses through it. And the damage is done. And the destruction is wrought. And it's, it's that tiny word, it's that sentence. It's just that thing that we wish we hadn't said. And yet it causes so much damage and so much destruction. It's the verbal grenade that we throw it and we wish we hadn't. Think of the time I used to work in a, um, a big office many moons ago. And sometimes when people left, fired, 
they, um, they left in a less than professional manner, shall we say. And so they used to send an email to the entire organization airing all their grievances and their grumbles and seeking to kind of cause damage on the way out. And the IT department would be there trying to kind of retrieve it and pull it back and yet you click on it and it's open and you've seen it and it never quite worked. I think of the time a friend of mine started working for a church and some of the new congregation weren't that keen on him. And it all got a bit political. And there were email threads going on about him. And, and at one point, he was copied in by mistake. And suddenly, he saw what they were all saying about him. And it was embarrassing. But it was telling. Little words. Huge impacts. Or think of the banter that just crosses the line. Or the joke that didn't quite land as it was meant to land. And... You kind of wish the, the ground would open up and swallow you. Or, or the angry reaction that should never have been spoken. And the tongue has the power to destroy it. 65 grams, but the damage it can do. And we say, words will never hurt me. But we are such liars. Because we live in a world where words have power. And we know they do. I can still remember things said to me at school 30 years ago. I can still remember harsh words, painful words used against me. And, you know, to my shame, I can still remember words that I said 30 years ago and harsh words that I used towards others. They are never just words. I keep toying up whether I use this, but I think I will. Do you remember in Spider-Man where he says, with great power comes great responsibility? I'm sure somebody else said it first, but Spider-Man is where it got really famous, yeah? It just strikes me that we all have great power. We don't need to be Spider-Man. We're people who steward words. And therefore, with our words come great responsibility. 65 grams. But it can do so much good and so much damage. So they have a daily power, firstly. Secondly, they have a diagnostic power as well. That is, we know what is going on inside us by the words that reach the outside. And so verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Do you want to know how mature you are, how perfect you are? Listen to your words. Listen to how you speak to people. And James is clear, there's a sense in which our struggle is to be expected, but it is not an excuse. So it should be expected, verse 7 to 8, all kinds of animals, etc. have been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our life will be an ongoing battle of seeking to, in his strength, tame our tongues, tame our words. 
It's to be expected, but it's not an excuse. There is no room for, well, <laughs> that's just me. It's just the way it is. Hard lines. Such is life. Get used to me and my words. Now, end of verse 10. That should not be. Our words diagnose what's going on inside. They diagnose our maturity. And James says, that should not be. You just can't have two types of water flowing from the same source. You don't get spring water and salt water from the same source. Or, or fruit on the same tree. There is no such thing as olives on a fruit tree. It doesn't work. There's no such thing as a heart full of love for the Lord and then discouraging words, anger, criticism, unkindness a bit later. That should not be. It's not right that on Sunday mornings we can sing songs to the Lord. We, we sing our hearts out and worship him, devotion and praise. And then as we're driving home or as we're having Sunday lunch, we're kind of ripping apart that person's character. Whatever it is that we struggle with about them. It's the gossiping and the grumbling and the criticizing and the moaning and the unkindness and the focusing in on the imperfections and never able to see any good. And, and we wouldn't say it to them, but we'll say it behind their backs. I think James says to us, that should not be. I mean, I'm speaking the truth in love. There's often not much love. And we say it's righteous anger. Maybe it's self-righteous anger. That should not be. There is no place for it. Stop kidding yourselves. You don't get olives on fig trees. You don't get fresh water and salt water from the same spring. It's very challenging, isn't it? Matt got it right a few weeks ago. He said the problem with James is not so much the understanding. The problem with James is the doing. It is revealed to me this last week, in this body, how immature I am, how far from perfection, how unfinished. And so if you are someone who struggles with this, and I'd say if you don't struggle with this, you're probably a liar. If you're someone who frequently wishes you could suck the words back into your mouth again and it, ah, press rewind, but oh, it's too late, too late. Then I think don't despair. Because James is at pains for us to say, we all stumble in many ways, verse 2. None of us are perfect and mature. All of us are works in progress. All of us are unfinished. Or verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is a poison. He's not beating us with it. But it's worth saying maybe it is an appropriate moment for, for repentance, for turning back to him afresh, to know the reality and comfort of mercies new every morning, to, to know that his grace is enough. Maybe you know that for you, your words are a real issue. And maybe it's a good moment to say sorry as we pray at the end of the sermon. I think there's a sense in which we all struggle with this, but you might know that your control of your tongue is a particular issue for you. Maybe even you could share that with someone a bit later, maybe today or this week, to open up and to bring some light into it and to ask them to pray with you, to ask the Lord to help you, to bring someone alongside. You know, there's always room for, for grace, even for us and our unkind and careless words. His blood is enough. 
maybe for some of us, it's even an opportunity to give ourselves entirely to him. Because we know we are double-minded. We know we're sat on the fence or trying to ride two bikes. It's Jesus on a Sunday and it's blending in through the week. And we sing praise to our, comf- to our creator one minute and then we're ripping people apart the next. Maybe it's an opportunity to actually turn to him for the first time. And say, I want to follow you. And those are good and they are right and they are appropriate responses to, I think, a passage like this. But they're not enough. Because James is right in verse 8 where he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. Why? Because our words reveal our hearts. And who is in the business of changing hearts? Our God. It's the new covenant. It's what he promised his people in Ezekiel. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. And he has given us new hearts, as Tony and Rose were teaching us. And yet our new hearts are not dead hearts of stone. They are alive. They are hearts of flesh, living hearts, moldable, shapeable, changeable, transformable. So it's the daily following of Jesus, the daily putting to death the sinful nature in his strength, by his spirit, picking up our cross, saying goodbye to the old me and put on Christ for today and gazing on his beauty and his glory and his goodness and his kindness and his patience and and so growing in maturity and perfection and, and increasingly shaped by his spirit and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so looking like Jesus and increasingly shaping our hearts and so shaping how we use our tongues. And the words that come out of our mouths. Let me pray. Father in heaven, our words find us out. They reveal, perhaps in uncomfortable ways, what's going on inside us. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would change us more into the likeness of Jesus. We pray that we might know the the daily reality of, of the power of words And so that we would steward them well. Lord, we're so sorry for when we get it wrong. Lord, we're so sorry for when we just speak, perhaps without thinking, or when our self-control is lacking. And we seek to make excuses. But before the cross, there are no real excuses. And so we long that you would be at work in us, please. Lord, you can change hearts. And so would you be at work by your spirit in each of us, conforming us more into the likeness of Jesus, shaping our hearts, so that we are better able to steward our words. Change us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. Amen.